0: Section fifteen of Beacon Lights of History, volume thirteen. Great Writers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Shakespeare or the Poet, part one, fifteen sixty four to sixteen sixteen, by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Great men are more distinguished by range and extent than by originality. If we require the originality which consists in weaving, like a spider, their web from their own bowels, in finding clay and making bricks and building the house, no great men are original. Nor does valuable originality consist in unlikeness to other men. The hero is in the press of night and the thick of events, and seeing what men want and sharing their desire, he adds the needful length of sight and of arm to come at the desired point. The greatest genius is the most indebted man. A poet is no rattle-brain, saying what comes uppermost, and, because he says everything, saying at last something good, but a heart in unison with his time and country. There is nothing whimsical and fantastic in his production, but sweet and sad, earnest, freighted with the weightiest convictions, and pointed with the most determined aim which any man or class knows of in his times.' THE GENIUS OF OUR LIFE IS JEALOUS OF INDIVIDUALS, AND WILL NOT HAVE ANY INDIVIDUAL GREAT, EXCEPT THROUGH THE GENERAL. THERE IS NO CHOICE TO GENIUS. A GREAT MAN DOES NOT WAKE UP ON SOME FINE MORNING AND SAY, I AM FULL OF LIFE. I WILL GO TO SEA AND FIND AN ANTARCTIC CONTINENT TODAY. I WILL SQUARE THE CIRCLE. I WILL RANSACK BOTANY AND FIND A NEW FOOD FOR MAN. I HAVE A NEW ARCHITECTURE IN MY MIND. I foresee A NEW MECHANIC POWER. NO, BUT HE FINDS HIMSELF IN THE RIVER OF THE THOUGHTS AND EVENTS, forced onward by the ideas and necessities of his contemporaries. He stands where all the eyes of men look one way, and their hands all point in the direction in which he should go. The Church has reared him amidst rites and pomps, and he carries out the advice which her music gave him, and builds a cathedral needed by her chants and processions. He finds a war raging. It educates him by trumpet in barracks, and he betters the instruction. He finds two counties groping to bring coal or flour or fish, from the place of production to the place of consumption, and he hits on a railroad. Every master has found his materials collected, and his power lay in his sympathy with his people and in his love of the materials he wrought in. What an economy of power! And what a compensation for the shortness of life! All is done to his hand. The world has brought him thus far on his way. The human race has gone out before him, sunk the hills, filled the hollows, and bridged the rivers. Men, nations, poets, artisans, women, all have worked for him, and he enters into their labors. Choose any other thing out of the line of tendency, out of the national feeling and history, and he would have all to do for himself. His powers would not be expended in the first preparations. Great genial power, one would almost say, consists in not being original at all, in being altogether receptive in letting the world do all, and suffering the spirit of the hour to pass unobstructed through the mind. Shakespeare's youth fell in a time when the English people were importunate for dramatic entertainments. The court took offense easily at political illusions and attempted to suppress them. The Puritans, a growing and energetic party, and the religious among the Anglican church would suppress them. But the people wanted them. In yards houses without roofs, and extemporaneous enclosures at county fairs were the ready theaters of strolling players. The people had tasted this new joy, and, as we could not hope to suppress newspapers now, no, not by the strongest party, neither could the king, prelate, or puritan, alone or united, suppress an organ which was ballad, epic, newspaper, caucus, lecture, punch, and library at the same time probably king, prelate, and Puritan all found their own account in it. It had become, by all causes, a national interest, by no means conspicuous, so that some great scholar would have thought of treating it in an English history, but not a whit less considerable, because it was cheap and of no account, like a baker's shop. The best proof of its vitality is the crowd of writers which suddenly broke into this field. Kidd, Marlowe, Green, Johnson, Chapman, Decker, Webster, Haywood, Middleton, Peel, Ford, Massinger, Beaumont, and Fletcher. The secure possession by the stage of the public mind is of the first importance to the poet who works for it. He loses no time in idle experiments. Here is audience and expectation prepared. In the case of Shakespeare, there is much more. At the time when he left Stratford and went up to London, a great body of stage plays of all dates and writers existed in manuscript and were in turn produced on the boards. Here is the tale of Troy, which the audience will bear hearing some part of every week, the death of Julius Caesar and other stories out of Plutarch, which they never tire of, a shelf full of English history from the chronicles of Brute and Arthur down to the Royal Henrys, which men hear eagerly, and a string of doleful tragedies, merry Italian tales, and Spanish voyages, which all the London prentices know. All the mass has been treated, with more or less skill, by every playwright, and the prompter has soiled and tattered manuscripts. It is now no longer possible to say who wrote them first. They have been the property of the theatre so long, and so many rising geniuses have enlarged or altered them, inserting a speech or a whole scene or adding a song, that no man can any longer claim copyright in this work of numbers. Happily, no man wishes to. They are not yet desired in that way. We have few readers, many spectators and hearers. They had best lie where they are. Shakespeare, in common with his comrades, esteemed the mass of old plays waste stock, in which any experiment could be freely tried. Had the prestige which hedges about a modern tragedy existed, nothing could have been done. The rude warm blood of the living England circulated in the play, as in street ballads, and gave body which he wanted to his airy and majestic fantasy. The poet needs a ground in popular tradition on which he may work, and which, again, may restrain his art within the due temperance. It holds him to the people, supplies a foundation for his edifice, and, in furnishing so much work done to his hand, leaves him at leisure and in full strength for the audacities of his imagination." In short, the poet owes to his legend what sculpture owed to the temple. Sculpture in Egypt and in Greece grew up in subordination to architecture. It was the ornament of the temple wall. At first a rude relief carved on pediments, then the relief became bolder and a head or arm was projected from the wall, the groups being still arranged with reference to the building, which serves also as a frame to hold the figures. And when, at last, the greatest freedom of style and treatment was reached— the prevailing genius of architecture still enforced a certain calmness and continence in the statue as soon as the statue was begun for itself and with no reference to the temple or palace the art began to decline freak extravagance and exhibition took the place of the old temperance this balance-wheel which the sculptor found in architecture the perilous irritability of poetic talent found in the accumulated dramatic materials to which the people were already wonted and which had a certain excellence which no single genius, however extraordinary, could hope to create. In point of fact, it appears that Shakespeare did owe debts in all direction, and was able to use whatever he found, and the amount of indebtedness may be inferred from Malone's laborious computations in regard to the first, second, and third parts of Henry V, in which, out of 6,043 lines, 1,771 were written by some author preceding Shakespeare, 2,373 by him, on the foundations laid by his predecessors, and 1,899 were entirely his own. And the preceding investigation hardly leaves a single drama of his absolute invention. Malone's sentence is an important piece of external history. In Henry the Eighth, I think I see plainly the cropping out of the original rock on which his own finer stratum was laid. The first play was written by a superior, thoughtful man with a vicious ear. I can mark his lines and know well their cadence. See Wolsey's soliloquy in the following scene with Cromwell, where, instead of the meter of Shakespeare, whose secret is that the thought constructs the tune, so that reading for the sense will best bring out the rhythm, here the lines are constructed on a given tune, and the verse has even a trace of pulpit eloquence. But the play contains, through all its length, unmistakable traits of Shakespeare's hand, and some passages, as the account of the coronation, are like autographs. What is odd, the compliment to Queen Elizabeth is in the bad rhythm. Shakespeare knew that tradition supplies a better fable than any invention can. If he lost any credit of design, he augmented his resources, and at that day, our petulant demand for originality was not so much pressed. There was no literature for the million. The universal reading, the cheap press were unknown. A great poet who appears in illiterate times absorbs into his sphere all the light which is anywhere radiating. Every intellectual jewel, every flower of sentiment, it is his fine office to bring to his people, and he comes to value his memory equally with his invention. He is therefore little solicitous whence his thoughts have been derived, whether through translation, whether through tradition, whether by travel in distant countries, whether by inspiration. From whatever source, they are equally welcome to his uncritical audience. Nay, he borrows very near home. Other men say wise things as well as he. Only they say a good many foolish things, and do not know when they have spoken wisely. He knows the sparkle of the true stone, and puts it in a high place wherever he finds it. Such is the happy position of Homer, perhaps, of Chaucer, of Savi. They felt that all wit was their wit, and they are librarians and historiographers as well as poets. Each romancer was heir and dispenser of all the hundred tales of the world. Presenting Thebes and Pelop's line, and the tale of Troy divine. The influence of Chaucer is conspicuous in all our early literature, and more recently not only Pope and Dryden have been beholden to him, but, in the whole society of English writers, a large unacknowledged debt is easily traced. One is charmed with the opulence which feeds so many pensioners. But Chaucer is a huge borrower. Chaucer, it seems, drew continually, through Lydgate and Caxton, from Guido di Colonna, whose Latin romance of the Trojan War was in turn a compilation from Baras Fyrgius, Ovid, and Statius. Then Petrarch, Boccaccio, and the provincial poets are his benefactors. The Romance of the Rose is only judicious translation from William of Loris and John of Mung, Troilius and Chrysidae from Lolius of Urbino, the Cock and the Fox from the Lay de Marie, the House of Fame from the French or Italian, and poor Gower he uses as if he were only a brick kiln or stone quarry out of which to build his house. He steals by this apology, that what he takes has no worth where he finds it, and the greatest where he leaves it. It has come to be practically a sort of rule in literature, that a man having once shown himself capable of original writing, is entitled thenceforth to steal from the writings of others at discretion. Thought is the property of him who can entertain it, and of him who can adequately place it a certain awkwardness marks the use of borrowed thoughts but as soon as we have learned what to do with them they become our own thus all originality is relative every thinker is retrospective the learned member of the legislature at westminster or at washington speaks and votes for thousands show us the constituency and the now invisible channels by which the senator is made aware of their wishes the crowd of practical and knowing men who by correspondence or conversation are feeding him with evidence anecdotes and estimates and it will bereave his fine attitudes and resistance of something of their impressiveness. As Sir Robert Peel and Mr. Webster vote, so Locke and Rousseau think, for thousands. And so there were fountains around Homer, Manu, Soddy, or Milton from which they drew. Friends, lovers, books, traditions, proverbs, all perished, which, if seen, would go to reduce the wonder. Did the bard speak with authority? Did he feel himself overmatched by any companion? the appeal is to the consciousness of the writer. Is there at last in his breast a Delphi whereof to ask concerning any thought or thing, whether it be verily so, yea or nay, and to have answer, and to rely on that? All the debts which such a man could contract to other wit would never disturb his consciousness of originality, for the ministrations of books and of other minds are a whiff of smoke to that most private reality with which he has conversed. It is easy to see that what is best written or done by genius in the world was no man's work, but came by wide social labor, when a thousand wrought like one, sharing the same impulse. Our English Bible is a wonderful specimen of the strength and music of the English language, but it was not made by one man or at one time, but centuries and churches brought it to perfection. There never was a time when there was not some translation existing. The liturgy, Admired for its energy and pathos is an anthology of the piety of ages and nations, a translation of the prayers and forms of the Catholic Church. These collected, too, in long periods, from the prayers and meditations of every saint and sacred writer all over the world. Grotius makes the like remark in respect to the Lord's Prayer that the single clauses of which it is comprised were already in use in the time of Christ, in the rabbinical forms. He picked out the grains of gold. The nervous language of the common law, the impressive forms of our courts, and the precision and substantial truth of the legal distinctions, are the contribution of all the sharp-sighted, strong-minded men who have lived in the countries where these laws govern. The translation of Plutarch gets its excellence by being translation on translation. There never was a time when there was none. All the truly idiomatic and national phrases are kept, and all others successively picked out and thrown away. Something like the same process had gone on long before with the originals of these books. The world takes liberties with world books. Vedas, Aesop's Fables, Pilpay, Arabian Nights, Seed, Iliad, Robin Hood, Scottish minstrelsy, are not the work of single men. In the composition of such works the time thinks, the market thinks, the mason, the carpenter, the merchant, the farmer, the fop, all think for us every book supplies its time with one good word, every municipal law, every trade, every folly of the day, and the generic Catholic genius who is not afraid or ashamed to owe his originality to the originality of all, stands with the next age as the recorder and embodiment of his own. We have to thank the researches of antiquaries and the Shakespeare Society for ascertaining the steps of the English drama from the mysteries celebrated in churches and by churchmen, and the final detachment from the church and the completion of secular plays, from Ferrex and Porrex, and Gammer Gurton's Needle, down to the possession of the stage, by the very pieces which Shakespeare altered, remodeled, and finally made his own. Elated with success, and piqued by the growing interest of the problem, they have left no bookstall unsearched, no chest in a garret unopened, no file of old yellow accounts to decompose in damp and worms. So keen was the hope to discover whether the boy Shakespeare poached or not, whether he held horses at the theatre door, whether he kept school, and why he left in his will only his second-best bed to Anne Hathaway, his wife. There is something touching in the madness with which the passing age mischooses the object on which all candles shine and all eyes are turned, the care with which it registers every trifle touching Queen Elizabeth and King James, the Essexes, Leicesters, Burleys, and Buckinghams, And let's pass without a single valuable note the founder of another dynasty, which alone will cause the Tudor dynasty to be remembered, the man who carries the Saxon race in him by the inspiration which feeds him, and on whose thoughts the foremost people of the world are now for some ages to be nourished, and minds to receive this and not another bias. A popular player, nobody suspected he was the poet of the human race, and the secret was kept as faithfully from poets and intellectual men as from courtiers and frivolous people. Bacon, who took the inventory of the human understanding for his times, never mentioned his name. Ben Jonson, though we have strained his few words of regard and panegyric, had no suspicion of the elastic fame whose first vibrations he was attempting. He no doubt thought the praise he has conceded to him generous, and esteemed himself, out of all question, the better poet of the two. If it need wit to know wit, according to the proverb, Shakespeare's time should be capable of recognizing it. Sir Henry Wotton was born four years after Shakespeare and died twenty-three years after him, and I find, among his correspondents and acquaintances, the following persons. Theodore Beza, Isaac Kosovan, Sir Philip Sidney, the Earl of Essex, Lord Bacon, Sir Walter Raleigh, John Milton, Sir Henry Vane, Isaac Walton, Dr. Don, Abraham Cawley, Bellarmine, Charles Cotton, John Pym, John Hales, Kepler, Vietta. Albericus Gentilius, Paul Sarpi, Arminius, with all of whom exists some token of his having communicated, without enumerating many others whom he doubtless saw: Shakespeare, Spencer, Johnson, Beaumont, Massinger, the two bears Marlowe, Chapman, and the rest. Since the constellation of great men who appeared in Greece in the time of Pericles, there was never any such society. Yet their genius failed them to find out the best head in the universe. Our poet's mask was impenetrable. You cannot see the mountain near. It took a century to make it suspected, and not until two centuries had passed after his death did any criticism which we think adequate begin to appear. It was not possible to write the history of Shakespeare till now, for he is the father of German literature. It was with the introduction of Shakespeare into German by Lessing and the translation of his works by Weiland and Schweigel that the rapid burst of German literature was most intimately connected. It was not until the 19th century, whose speculative genius is a sort of living Hamlet, that the tragedy of Hamlet could find such wondering readers. Now, literature, philosophy, and thought are Shakespeareized. His mind is the horizon beyond which, at present, we do not see. Our ears are educated in music by his rhythm. Coleridge and Goethe are the only critics who have expressed our convictions with any adequate fidelity but there is in all cultivated minds a silent appreciation of his superlative power and beauty, which, like Christianity, qualifies the period. End of section 15.